Hey everyone, it's Liz Kelly, and I want to tell you about the second annual Ringer NBA Palooza we have going on next week on Tuesday, October 16th. We'll be streaming a live marathon countdown to tip off with Bill Simmons and the Ringer NBA crew, featuring live podcasts, special guests, Ringer original shorts, and culminating in a Sixers Celtics watch party. You can check it out live on Tuesday across all of our social media platforms. And don't forget to check out our brand new NBA Palooza merch on theringer.com slash shop. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at theringer.com. And joining me live from a hot springs in New Mexico, it's Andy Greenwald! You know, I never made it to any hot springs. There are apparently places of great rest and relaxation there. It's a great place to go before you die. Andy, (laughs) (laughs) that I can attest to. It is Thursday. We were joined today by Patrick Somerville, co-creator, head writer, executive producer of Maniac, a really great guy, a nice conversation with him about Maniac, about The Leftovers, about The Bridge, about Andy's past film uh, TV criticism. I feel like for people who are listening... We definitely, Chris and I, watched all of Maniac before we had this conversation. I don't think we really spoil anything. I don't really know that you can spoil Maniac. That, that's the thing. So I encourage you. I thought it was great to talk to him about the process, which yeah. I think is interesting to anyone who's a fan of TV. So I think you should feel fairly comfortable. But if you are close to finishing, finish the season first. Yeah, I think listen. it's more of a—it it was such a unique production in terms of—and he talks about this, of, of it being something that— had stars attached, had a director attached as Patrick came in to break the world. To create were, yeah, the show. To, to create the show and to write the show and give an angle for the show. So it's a really, really cool conversation with Patrick Somerville. I hope we'll come back sometime soon, maybe after the, the Brewers win the World Series, not to jinx them. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk did. a little bit about the season finale of Better Call Saul. Oh, let me just say one bit of oh, uh, yeah, house yeah, cleaning. Yeah. Um, this feels surreal to even say out loud, but this Sunday, a CNN is airing a new episode of... Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown. Um, as anyone who's, you know, a longtime listener of this podcast know how much Tony Bourdain meant to to me and to Chris. Huge fans, huge fans of the show. Kind of in awe of what the 0.0 family has been able to do this season. Cobbling together sounds dismissive. Uh, creating episodes um, out of what was left behind, basically. And this week's episode is, I guess, a tribute to Tony's impact on people and on the world and on culture. And I was incredibly fortunate, humbled, totally humbled, uh, and still kind of in shock to be interviewed for it. Um, Incredible guys from the show. Morgan Fallon, the director who worked with Tony for many years, came to my house and gave me the chance to talk about Tony and my brief, you know, interactions with him, but the effect that he had on me and I think the effect he had on culture. I have no idea if they used any of it, but, you know, it is a lifelong, well, not lifelong, but as long as he's been a figure in my life. It was a dream to yeah. be a part of a project of his. It's painful to even think about how it ended up happening. But the fact that I was able to contribute in a tiny way was just beyond humbling and one of the biggest privileges of my career. And clearly there are other people interviewed who were more important to Tony in his life and to his work. And so for them alone, I encourage people to watch it. But I'm, yeah, I just want to let people know. Yeah, you know, like the this whole last couple of months, I've been... It's been accumulating on my DVR, yeah. and I've been seeing it when I open up iTunes. Like, I have a couple of his shows, and I have my favorite episodes that I've bought so that, like, I'll kind of always have them if I want to watch one on a plane or something like that. And this is a show for, I think, for Andy and Fry that not only was it an education and a passport to the world and to, uh, an introduction to all sorts of cuisine and people and music and things, it was also a comfort for us both. Like, we would have reruns of Bourdain. I just had like 25 Bourdains like on my DVR and if I was like just cleaning the house or sitting around and I had 25 minutes to kill, I would watch one of those. I stopped doing that. You know, I I find it almost too sad to do it. But I will say this, one of the things that you just read over and over and over again about CPZ and the making of this show is just how instrumental and incredible the people around him were and how they've been soldiering through to put this show up. And I started watching them again because of that, and I knew that you were going to be on, and I encourage everybody to watch on Sunday. Whether or not you make the final cut, I'm sure you know you should, you will. You loved him, and you were really articulate about him. But yeah, it's just been such a such a weird few months because of, of it, its presence. You know? I actually, like, I'm kind of surprised just talking on the mic just still how raw it feels to, to think about or talk about as someone who, you know, only met him a handful of times. But the real tribute here... 
and I, I hope I was able to express that on a microphone, I'm sure other people did, is the team around him. Yeah. Like Chris Collins and Lydia Tanaglia from 0.0, um, Morgan Fallon, who I mentioned, who came over, um, another producer, John Cianfrani, came over, Helen Cho, who was by his side throughout the last 10 years of his career. These are truly talented, good people whose lives were completely shaped and changed by Tony, but they changed his life too, mm-hmm. you know, and affected him. And it really was, even in the one day they were over at my house, yeah. you know, you could see the relationship that all these people who had worked together um, for all this time had created and how seriously they took every frame of this show. They took no plays off, and they have not this final season either. Um, it's amazing to watch. So that's Sunday. This past Monday was the fourth season finale. Yeah, of Better Call Saul. Better Call Saul. We're going to talk about it. I hope people have watched it. Yeah, uh, this will be a tremendously long segment because I thought it was a, a an interesting... It's interesting to get to points in this sh- in this story that I think we all know eventually where most of it has to go. Mm-hmm. And it's the process that leads up to these mile markers that mm-hmm. I think I enjoy more more than the actual and you know, we'll start spoiler now, then turning around and saying it's all good man. You know? Yeah. That's that's the part where I'm like, "Oh, okay." But it's all the little things that build up to these big things that I enjoy watching. And particularly in that moment, it's Kim scene. Mhm. Odenkirk can play Saul Goodman in his sleep, and it really was more about playing Jimmy McGill that was surprising and challenging. Now retaining whatever shreds of Jimmy McGill exist in this next season, and if there's another season after that, we don't know. That'll be the challenge and be the interesting thing in watching that performance. But framing the transformation on and lingering on Kim's face when she realizes the depth. And pulling away from her with the camera. The yeah. sociopathy that's, that's, that she's realizing she's now, you know, completely entwined with, landed for me. But I was really entranced and blown away by the the whole, the Werner thing. It's the bulk of the episode. It was an episode where what was going to happen to Mike felt a little bit more, not what's going to happen to him, but how things were going to play for him felt more uh, at risk or in flux than they have in recent seasons of the show, which I appreciated. But the, um, the way that they played this out from the Small procedural details that you know they just talked about for days in the room about the chewing gum. Yeah. Losing Lalo, who, by the way, Tony Dalton's performance remains <laughs> like, that's the third heat on the show now yeah. for the season to come that I'm very excited about. Down to what it would mean for Mike to find him, what it would mean for Mike to make the decision that he has to make and to do the things that he has to do. There's thought given into every rung of the ladder, which I appreciate. And I got to say, the the privilege of a show that really is just pure process that it gives us the space to think about these things and watch them unfold. I was trying to think about why I cared about the show and why I've come back to the show that we have on this podcast. And like seeing how every little step matters, that's dramatically inert. That's just like a platitude. Yeah, it's the kind of, yeah. That's a greeting card stuff, right? Yeah. And then I was thinking about when we realized that in our life, right? And do you remember, um, I was thinking about like high school and you write your college applications and people are like, you better get serious, man, because this is going to affect the rest of your life. Uh-huh. And then you become an adult and you're like, well, I probably was this could have found my way here anyway. Like there were other paths to get here potentially, right? Yeah, and I think it's more about it. it the decision you make about where or how you get into college or if you go to college yeah. is just another decision. Yes. It's not necessarily like I got into this school or I got into that school. And I'm sure for a lot of people that does matter a lot. I'm just saying it's just another one of the thousand million decisions yes. that you're going to make. This, and when you make that decision, you have no idea how that's going to change 55 decisions to come. It's, yeah, it's butterfly effect. And the other thing that really put this into relief for me is, t- to give you the full context of my experience watching the show, I didn't watch it when it aired Monday. I watched it after uh, I attended curriculum night <laughs> for kindergarten <laughs> last night. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I get it now from a position of you know great privilege and middle age or whatever I'm in. Every fucking decision did matter. It's just funny which ones we spotlight, right? Mm-hmm. And so thinking that way and thinking about life that way and then the opportunity to think about art that way and drama that way with this show, for some reason it, it was a it was a different window to watch it. I know we've been using these words like process and whether the fact that we know where these things are going neuters the storytelling or whatever. But this was an episode that to me, the, the, the additions they did, right? The... Um, the, the the flashback scene with Chuck, 
the gravity of what the super lab meant to Mike. The and Catherine what it Esposito cost scene where he Mike. kind of explains, yeah. All of that didn't feel like vamping or filler to me. It, it felt like load-bearing, emotional load-bearing stuff that really paid off and added texture to everything that we already know. Yeah, I think that uh, we've been talking about a, a little, we talk about widescreen and close-ups, and I've been thinking about it more. I don't know if this is a more apt metaphor for it, but it's standing close to a painting. And so we already know what the painting, ultimately, mm-hmm. the, the huge painting in the Philadelphia Art Museum is going to look like. Mm-hmm. But when you stand right up close to that Van Gogh and you see the way he accounts for sunlight hitting this part of the meadow versus that part of the meadow, and, oh, did you notice that there's a woman standing next or to the, the bar? the thickness of the brush Exactly, strokes. yeah. And this, it's all about texture. You start to notice different things about what you think are supposed to be your— and we talked a little bit about this with Patrick, about what your expectations are for things like character development. Mm-hmm. What arc does this person have to go on? And this whole time, we're like, what, what's going to happen to Kim? I don't know what's going to happen to Kim now, legitimately, because I was watching that Mike stuff, and I was like, you know what? This isn't like a he can't come back from here moment for Mike. Mike actually chose to do this yep. because he knew that he could provide a more humane exit for this guy than if Gus had sent his dudes out. Mm-hmm. And that he probably saved Werner's wife's life. Yep. and gave her some semblance of, not, if not closure, she got to hear his voice again. And in some ways, that, that was heroic in and of itself. And he's no more in it or not in it than he was before this happened. And he also chose to keep going with Gus. Yeah, the reminder here, it, what's nice is that it was a reminder, it wasn't a lesson. He's, he's felt you know, bulletproof, which is an ironic thing to say for people who have watched Breaking Bad, but he's felt bulletproof and fun because he fixes everything and he floats above it and he takes care of everything. What what this was for me was a reminder that he is touchable. Yeah. That he has found himself with somehow, so far with dignity and with some voice that he can use under the thumb of, you know, a, a, a psychopath on some level, right? A, a, a complete villainous mastermind. Mm-hmm. And he does not have the wiggle room that he thought he had. Oh, absolutely His not. voice was heard. There are other people in that organization who probably couldn't even speak up or speak back. Right. But he was a soldier, you know, and that was a nice reminder. It's just, again, it's like what we always say about the show. It has a real—people really—the people making the show really understand the characters and at every moment, which is harder than it sounds. And also, I just want to commend you for— just low-key pointing out to people that you grew up near the Philadelphia Art Museum. <laughs> and probably on, like, lonely weeknights would just wander its halls. Sure. I love to go see a little Twombly. Uh, where do you think things go from here, to wrap things up here? I, I, I said this after every season of the show, but I feel like there's only one season left. I say this knowing we had a conversation the other day about how these guys just seem to enjoy it, and there's probably, you know, they could probably keep 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 going I if they wanted to. I think there's two left. I, I guess so. Um, it depends I, on whether or not you think that there's going to be that any of this, any of Better Call Saul is going to be post-bad. Oh, right. There's that aspect. That's right. So I feel like, I guess I'm interested in seeing the full transformation of Saul Goodman and how he becomes a part of the operation, basically. Mm-hmm. He's working for Gus Fring himself in the way that the the, the Saul and Mike storylines become more intertwined than they have been for the last two years. I'm curious about Kim. But I think you're right. Like, Kim's fate, damage has been done to her, you know? And, and it's a very Better Call Saul damage. It's not that she gets taken out to the desert and shot. It's, look what's... Look what she's steered her life into. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the question is, is the Cinnabon stuff an afterthought? Is there a coda? Or is there a season where Gene reclaims Jimmy McGill? Or, or whatever. Or whatever is still out there for him. And maybe that's a conversation it they're turns having, into too. better clean Gene. Ooh. <laughs> like that. Yeah. Did you just come up with that, or have you been workshopping just that? call me. I'm, I'm not hard to find. I'm, ra- I'm out here. I'm You're ready, always here in this podcast studio. All right, Greenwald, we're going to talk to Patrick Somerville, but first we're going to take a quick break from our sponsor. We'll be talking Monday briefly. I think we'll talk about the Romanoffs, if I can give you that homework. I will definitely watch some Romanoffs. And, well, there's uh, one. There's only one coming out. I think they're. I thought they were dropping oh, they three two, at first. Two or three? Well, we'll watch, we'll watch a Romanoffs or two. They're 90 minutes, so don't overcommit here. Thank you for not making me tell people how long the episodes were. <laughs> um, so we'll have Romanoffs and a couple of interviews. Cause, cause I'm, I'm, I'm going feed first into the edit next week. I know. Week. So you'll be on the phone. And then Thursday, you'll be on the phone. And then, you know, I'm sure the rotating guests that you'll have coming in. What are you talking about? Oh, I'm sorry. Is the mic still on? (laughs) Oh, I'll be here. All right. Patrick Somerville coming up. First, a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you. 
backed by 24-7 protection. You can explore the vast number of things you can do with your secure smart home, like doorman service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids, or turndown service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat. It's all controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. And don't worry about installing and configuring your system. ADT will D-I-F-Y do it for you. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ExpressVPN. You're being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile or internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, but they often sell it to other corporations for profit. Take back your privacy with ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar, and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and costs less than $7 a month. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi or don't want to hand over your online history to your internet provider, ExpressVPN is the solution. Let me tell you two reasons why you should really think hard about getting ExpressVPN. One, read the newspaper. (laughs) Data and data privacy and... Securing your data is a huge issue these days, and VPN, ExpressVPN can be one of your number one assistants in making sure that your data is secure. Number two, most of us are running around like crazy, jumping on this Starbucks Wi-Fi, jumping on this airport Wi-Fi. We're running around. We're on different networks. Don't you want a little bit of security, that safety blanket of knowing that you're encrypted? That's where ExpressVPN comes in. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash watch. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash watch for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash watch to learn more. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and better ways to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying the right people see them. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply for your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash watch. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash watch. ZipRecruiter.com slash watch. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We are now thrilled to be joined by the Christian. Now, I'm not going to do the Christian Yelich joke. <laughs> thrilled to be joined by Milwaukee Brewer superfan, my friend, Patrick Somerville, the creator of Maniac, the co showrunner, writer, co adapter. You have a lot of titles on this, a lot of on this baby. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for, for coming, having me, guys. Patrick, we're so happy to have you here on the Sunset Gower Studio a lot while the Maniac billboard across the street from Netflix is still halfway there. Still there. Right now it says Yak. And the front says Jillian Adventures of... Yeah, well, the shows come hot and fast out of Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) That that Chilling Adventures of Sabrina thing is coming in in fast, but we still have a little window here. Congratulations. Thank you. On the show. Thank you. We're very happy to have you here to talk about it. Despite what I told you, this is not primarily going to be about preschools on the east side of Los Angeles. We can talk preschool, though, if you want. Or the NL Central. (laughs) Those are topics of equal disinterest to Chris Ryan, so we got to keep him in the mix. (laughs) Um, We want to talk about, so if everyone at this table has seen every episode of Maniac, I assume, Patrick, you have as well. I have. Um, Kaya has, too. Oh, great. Okay, so this is a safe space. For listeners, we are going to talk about the whole thing. But I definitely wanted to begin with a little more process stuff because— I was speaking to you when this whole thing was coming together, and I just feel like it's such a bizarre convergence of events and people that you've found yourselves a part of, right? And we can talk about how this came to you, because originally this was a Scandinavian format. Mm-hmm. Norwegian show. A Norwegian show called Maniac that Netflix, or was it Netflix or Paramount? It was anonymous content, anonymous that, content. that kind of uh, pulled it out of the ether and... They took it to Carrie, and Carrie, I think, was intrigued by a number of elements of that show. And right. then 
he went to Emma and then Emma and he went to Jonah and Netflix sort of, I think caught wind of this project around that part of the process. It's sort of the, the package building moments right. in, in TV show creation, which is matters more now, I think than it did when I, when I first started yeah. even five years ago and Netflix kind of took it off the table as, as a show that they wanted to make, even though there wasn't really a take, <laughs> you know, there right. wasn't, there was a concept and, and it was a Walter Mitty concept, but even beyond that, there wasn't that big of a take. And so, and so at this point, what everyone's that. enthusiastic about is the prospect of working together, right? Netflix wants to work with Carrie and Carrie wants to work with them and Jonah. They want to work together again. They want to work with Carrie. So there's goodwill, but there's no there there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, maybe the one little extra piece is that I think Carrie was excited about being able to shoot in multiple genres in the same show. Right. right. I think as a director, I think that was interesting to him and, and, and a challenge and all the things that make a project exciting when it's so abstract. So it came to you as this, did, were you asked to watch the Norwegian show or were you just asked to provide ideas of what a show with this quality of people involved in it and with this title could be? It wasn't, it was, it was a little bit more general of a conversation. And they, they had been talking to writers for a, a, a long time. I knew, I remember reading Name them. them. <laughs> I don't actually, I have no idea. <laughs> we'll, we'll dunk on them was, later. But, um, it was, I remember reading in the trades about the show when The Leftovers' third season room was just getting going. Which is what you were working on. That's, and that's where I was. And then I, rem- I had my first conversation with Carrie via Skype in, in June of 2016, which was, we had two weeks left in the, in the leftovers room. Then. Mm-hmm. So they, that search had been going on a long time. And when I first talked to anonymous content about the show, they told me the premise and they told me some of the, the bigger thoughts, but they also said, you know, we, we want someone to make up a take for how to do this show. And the pieces that were there ahead of time had an impact on what the show became as well. There, there were two leads essentially and that was kind of a precondition of the making up of how to do the show and that that fundamentally is different than how the Norwegian show operated with it does have two main characters but it's kind of a a straight man and complicated man Mm -hmm. situation Mm -hmm. you know it's sort of a sort of like me and Chris yeah (laughs) one person (laughs) isn't is asking questions about the mind of another person it's it felt imbalanced in the wrong way, knowing that we had Jonah and Emma mm-hmm. um, both at the front end. So we kind of had to come up with a different way to tell a story. So when you start talking to Carrie, does he have any elements of, of not maybe not even a Bible for the show, but even ideas where he's like, I'm pretty sure I want it to be like this. Because I, I, I was wondering about when a lot of the ideas about technology and um, the almost production design, the textures of the show, before you start filling it in, before you start creating the story, does he have that in mind or does that come after the fact? So much, it's funny watching the show now because quite a lot of it came out of the very first Skype call that he and I had when we were were strangers. But I think he had a, a deep sense that he did not want to set the show in a psychiatric facility uh, because there was something about that that essentially made the humor of the show come out of making fun of mental illness. The, that show got laughs on moments of like, look at how our character doesn't understand what's real and not right now. Mm-hmm. And, and there's something just n- not appealing to either of us about that. And so he came to that conversation with the idea of a pharmaceutical trial. And I liked that. I thought that was a good idea. I had different worries and thoughts and concerns about how to do the show in that call, but a heightened reality a different reality felt right to me. And I think at that point, it was sort of an intuitive thing. Why, I I didn't quite know. But I I essentially thought that the story was going to have to be the story of two strangers who who come to know each other, which for some reason is the hardest story for me to write. It's it's really difficult to to tell a story of two strangers who don't know each other in the beginning of a story who who do by the end. and I, I think, you know, that led to all sorts of decisions about splitting the point of view at the front ends, about wanting to get to a place where they're saying very simple things to each other by the end of the show. That was really what I wanted, to get to very simple exchanges between two people who had come to know each other. And 
in the strange intuitive math I think of storytelling, I just thought it had to be complicated at the beginning if it was going to be simple at the end. Hmm. And and so I think that idea of a heightened reality came out of came out of those very first thoughts about how to do the show. Well, I can also see what you're speaking to in terms of difficulty because you intentionally, I think, reject a standard. It's not like a meet cute situation. It's not a, necessarily a romantic show in a traditional way. This isn't about people who are wildly attracted to each other or share one, you know, a, a more overt. Uh, or traditional romantic thing between them that they discover or love for something or whatever it may be, what they end up with is what you said. They know each other at the end, which is a different kind of intimacy. And I think to track that and to draw 10 episodes of tragic comic drama out of it. It's funny, isn't it? Because a rom-com kind of skips the they know each other (laughs) and goes straight to they they love each other. Yes, and then unless you have that moment, and I thought you were going for a similar thing, like the graduate ending, where it's like, okay, here we go. Yeah, yeah. Wait, where are we going? You have a little bit of that at the end. I here, just want to be clear: there are no that. references to other films, no, in Mania <laughs> no. whatsoever. It, we want to commend I you for a wholly to, original. You invented elves, which is pretty cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> that was a pretty good. No, look. I wrote an essay about about fairy stories, and uh, I wrote yeah a bunch of novels. They're called Lord of the Rings. Too, so. No, there, there's good luck a, with that though, for sure. I know. We're, we're gonna try. We're gonna try. So. The the note, yeah, but I will say too, there was that was a conversation about the romantic mm-hmm. versus the non-romantic. That was an ongoing conversation in our writers' room um, when when I was by myself writing the first couple of episodes. Later on, set and in production too, and and I think Emma in particular, I think had a very keen, good sense of of focusing the story on on the non-romantic friendship mm-hmm. side of that axis um, because I think from an acting point of view you just don't get that many opportunities to play that kind of story mm-hmm. I think I think that she she was interested in that and I think also by the end of this show their relationship kind of defies categorization by in any way because I think he's filling in for her sister in some ways she is a sibling that maybe he never had there's it's it's not overtly sexual but there's it's there's a romantic element to it there's something almost like this is the purest form of of like you're saying friendship and they even say that to one another in the bathroom where they're like I'm I'm just I'm because I'm your friend you know and that really came across that and in a way the ambivalence of or the ambiguity of the of the last scene kind of to me was more about that rather than like are we doing the right thing it was more mm-hmm. like we're not necessarily even lovers we're just like these two people we are in almost we're almost like this is my soul partner you know yeah and even i would add is it going to be successful yeah. as a relationship right. on 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 any level who who knows you know well, they they did have a moment though we skipped to the end i did want to go back to the beginning for just an, a, a couple other questions one being a lot of this podcast in the last few weeks has been a, me recovering from my experience being on the creative side of it and, ta- and thinking about things differently. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. I was fishing for that. Um, <laughs> but basically, you know, it's a lot easier as a critic to default to an auteur theory of television because you can just give one person all the credit, all the blame for everything. This experience for me has really been about stripping things apart and realizing the, the distinct things that directors bring, that actors bring, that producers bring, production designers, every aspect of it. Because of the nature of this particular project and how you came in with all these other heavy hitter people attached, what were the extra parts of your job? You're writing something that you have to be proud of and that you're excited about. You're writing something that is gets Carrie excited and you know fulfills what he wants to direct. And you also have, as executive producers on the show, your two stars mm-hmm. who can cherry pick their projects and had to feel very passionate about this in order to make it happen. Yeah, and definitely had opinions about about what it should be. Um, it was a very unusual process from the very first day that I wrote any scenes to to now. Just in the in the order of how things happened. It's it's just a different kind of show in that we had a full 20-week writer's room and Carrie was out of the country. Jonah was uh, working on his movie. Emma was was making the favorite, I think, and it was really just us in a vacuum plotting a course through the 10 episodes. And also, this my father died a week and a half after the room started, and and we broke an episode. I went home. He died, and I was there for two weeks going through all of that. Yeah. As the room, who, people who didn't really know each other kind of half-continued breaking an episode, and then I came back and, 
and we resumed. And that, I think, you know, that haunted the the creative process along the way for me and, and what ended up getting into the story. But it also was just another strange sideways thing in, in the creation of the show. Carrie came back, we started prep, and I think the next thing that happened, which was unusual, was that he needed to engage at a very detailed and, and granular level about what he thought the story should be and, and how he wanted it to work. And, and that created this step of, of changing the storytelling and finding a third way through, I think, that was, that was a combination of, of his creative point of view and my creative point mm-hmm. of view. And it's another story of two strangers, too, because I, I didn't yeah. really know Carrie, and Carrie didn't really know me. We had been talking as we went, but it, it, we didn't know each other that well. And all of a sudden, you have to map your brainwaves together. Pretty much, In a yeah, big experiment. Yeah. I mean, it, it's amazing the way shows can often reflect some of the creative process behind it. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I watched, when I watch Maniac, there's stuff all, <laughs> all over it that is just fully, like, meta and me not even realizing that I was writing about the process of making the show right in the middle of making the show. Are you able to read your mother's successful self-help books <laughs> now? <laughs> Have you found some sort of... My mother has actually written two historical gardening books. Oh, man, really? Yeah. Should that's, we? That's where it ends. I up. happen to have two copies <laughs> of each right here. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's go through them. So what is, um, and before we get into the, the weeds of talking about some of the specifics of the episodes and performances that we, that we both enjoyed, for you, as this became a, I mean, all TV is collaborative, but as this became a more open text collaboration with Carrie, with the actors, once you had them on set, with all the variables— for you, what was the spine that kept you passionate? Like, what is the kernel of the story that you latched onto when it was just an idea that you loved at the beginning and you love now, that you saw through? You know, in the face of all the additions and all the changes and all the happy accidents that happened along the way. It's a story about loneliness and the antidote to loneliness, really. And uh, yes, there are all sorts of very interesting opportunities. It's It was a landscape for a show that, was very weird and creative and and bold and insisted on itself and we got a lot of space from from our network and studio to do that and that was always exciting just there was a kind of improvisational and just sort of I don't know energized creative feeling about the show all mm-hmm. the time and that always kept me going but but really I think just the the simple story of of loneliness and two people coming together and not being quite as lonely at the end. I think it's very simple. And and in prestige dramas, I think that that felt a little subversive to me yeah. as well, that, that it could be that simple, just two people making friends. And it could be kind of dressed in a different way that, that still hit some of the codes and language of prestige cable, but stayed simpler on, on the emotional side, too. Beyond that, you've worked on now two shows that are set in a sort of altered reality, for, for lack of a better phrase. How do you come up with the rules when you can really do anything? I'm curious about what the, the rules were, either with between you and Carrie or between you and the writers, or even— everybody involved, where you're like, okay, so what's allowed to happen in this show when anything can happen? It was it was so different on The Leftovers than it was for Maniac. And I, I, I will say that The Leftovers, for as sort of speculative and high concept the, the conceit was, was actually, I found to be very grounded Absolutely. For, the, for the 16 episodes leading up to the international assassin episode and so we we had this inertia of groundedness going for us for international assassin and a kind of unexpectedness that nobody knew what was going to happen in episode 17 Mm -hmm. and you know the other element that was very different about that episode was that kevin still had his kevinness to him and 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 that fully changes the rules of the of the storytelling because your your main character is basically along with the audience trying to suss out what is happening around him throughout mm-hmm. the episode and you feel it feels safer somehow I think in in international assassin and so one of the rules in, in the maniac versions of the the reflections was that they did not take their essential identity with them at least on the surface into those places they were new people mm-hmm. and you can imagine I mean you saw when you watched the show 
me bending over backwards trying to do the kind of absurdist exposition download in 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 a very compact period of time sure. in order not just to say like here's where they are in their story but here's who they are and get enough of that out early enough to tell what i hope is a short compact satisfying little micro story yeah so that that changed everything the rule that they didn't know and then the rule of how does it how do they break through and become owen and annie at particularly important emotional times in those stories yeah became another kind of sub rule that we had to work through. I think the different demands started dictating how the rules evolved. And then on the day too, you know, Emma in the scene in episode four, when she's with the mother of the man who would later cause the accident that, that killed her sister, there wasn't really anything on the page in that scene about when that thing pops and, and Annie is there and she, and the the Linda facade falls away, and yet she just did it. Yeah, you know she just felt it. And I, when I when I watch that scene, I, I think that she just has a such a deep control over the different layers of, of the self that are happening. Sure, that she just did that. And that's just her. She didn't. There weren't notes involved. She just found it. The thing that's amazing to watch in her performance, and I think in a lot of great acting, is the ability to play emotions that are by nature very uncomfortable and rough and uncontrollable and play them with the precision of like a jazz solo or something, right? That she can, she's tracking the rhythm even in a way that, that, that we can. And I think that's true for her performance throughout the entire series. That leads me to an, a question that I actually had forgotten that I wanted to ask, which is through no fault of your own, you're inheriting the reigning Best Actress Oscar winner <laughs> for her next <laughs> project, know, was... which must have created its own interesting things for you guys. But I guess the, it's just a, a general question to speak more about her performance because I do think her ability to play broad and play fun but also always play emotionally true is one of the things that that I just was elated by in the series and carried me through it. I love when she comes in in episode two and starts to sort of just show the audience who she is in in those first scenes of her episode because I think the the audience at that moment is is pretty disoriented in terms of how reality operates mm-hmm. coming out of the first episode and and she has she just understood that she had to play this kind of I don't know very believable kind of kind of person to exist inside of such a heightened world that that was essential to mm-hmm. the show working, that she be really real, even though, you know, she was doing a scene with a koala. And and she did that. I think I think her her presence in that second episode, for me, and then the, the argument that she has with her sister, especially so, really stabilizes a ver- a tone that's that's asking a lot of the audience to say, like, no, this is this is a, a very st- unusual landscape where ad buddies and friend proxies exist, but we're asking you to take the emotional lives of these people seriously yeah. inside of it. And and I think that the last piece of that was was Emma entering and, and doing what she did in the second episode. Was the addition of all of the the extra extra reality bits that we get in the first two episodes, things that I really loved, um, from the the robot scoopers to the ko- the koala playing chess to the the friend proxies Everything about their life in the reality. Void, that's the not, void tank. Yeah. That's, not, that's not reality. Were those, how early in the process did those the ideas appear? Um, how and how important were those additions to you and your, in, in this story that you wanted to be telling? The big ones were there. Uh, coming off of that very first conversation that I, I had had with Carrie and, and just things I wanted to do the ad buddies, the friend proxies, doc stop. Uh, the 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 smaller stuff the details around all of that were added all throughout the process and that I in the background of every scene there's something mm-hmm. that that either Alex D. Gerlando, our amazing production designer Max Sherwood our our prop master or any number of other people added just the, there became it, it felt I think to our crew that it was alive and fair game to throw ideas in because it was um, it was open creatively as we went. It was not locked down, and it wasn't in concrete. It was the, the the cement was wet still. So people threw a lot of ideas in, into it, and they just accumulated. And it kind of the aesthetic of the world 
almost took over in, in the way that that a character, you know, writers talk about characters mm-hmm. saying things and and taking over, finding themselves on the page. The the world kind of did that as we went. Yeah. How did you guys arrive at this idea of like? you know, in some ways, futuristic behaviors and in futuristic processes. But on the other hand, everything seems hardwired. It's dot matrix printers. It's old newer cabs. How did you sort of decide on the aesthetic versus the technological advancement of the world? I think some of it was was in the earlier, in in the very first scripts. But I think then it really got focused as we went my priority, I think, it with with ad buddies and friend proxies and what have you, was just to find a different way to to show those feelings because I was conscientious that Black Mirror had had done that a lot and in in a kind of digital way mm-hmm. and, and I, we wanted to find a way around VFX and so inserting an actor as an ad buddy and that concept because so we we could use a human felt really good because it felt different but getting after a feeling that was important in the show and then I, we just drifted more and more analog as we went yeah. and and it it cohered around all this amazing gear that that the rest of the crew was going out and renting from these old shops in New York that just have this shit yeah. you know and uh it, it just it just became more and more analog and then i think the year where the split in the timeline occurred kind of just we settled somewhere somewhere in the early 80s yeah and uh then we went with it was it good luck or good planning that both Emma Stone and Julia Garner can do spe- pretty spectacular British accents? <laughs> luck. Yeah. Totally. totally luck. You just wrote it. And then... Well, we just... Because Garner, who I've never... have to have English accents. She <laughs> seemed real comfortable in that role. I mean, I feel like... Emma? Uh, uh, Julia? Julia seemed oh, yeah. really comfortable in that role. Um, they're talented, talented actresses. They... they uh, I think it was fun for them, honestly. I think it was it was fun to just to be able to to do something different and differentiate between the other versions of themselves. But we got lucky, I guess. Well, one of the great um, advantages of working with such talented people, but also having something like Netflix behind you, is you just have access to a pretty incredible talent pool across the board. I mean, I was just in my head thinking about actors and performances I wanted to mention, and I almost forgot that you have Gabriel Byrne on your show. I mean, you have... Such a yeah. high level yeah. of talent surrounding um, these stars. Specifically, though, I did want to ask about um, Justin Thoreau's performance and involvement and also the inc- fucking incredible Sally Field, who oh, is yeah. so good on your show. I mean, she's <laughs> always good. But the way she tears into this part when she shows up is so thrilling. Uh, and their dynamic is hilarious. She just knew she knew what she was going to do. I think the second that she, she was accepted our invitation to join the show and she knew it even better than we knew it mm-hmm. <laughs> she had it in her head and there there is a thing about sally who she she's done this for so long and so well for so long in so many different contexts that she knows what a pa is going to say to her as a pa is walking up to her like she knows what i'm going to say as i'm walking up and mm-hmm. and she's sort of out in front of the production and out in front of the creative side as well. So I just sort of at, at some point was just sort of sat back and was in awe of what she was doing. For example, she just started calling James Jamie after he apologized to her. Mm-hmm. That was not in the script. Hmm. He, she just started doing that. And we shot those out of order. That everything was cross-boarded and she had just done that and it was it was kind of amazing mm-hmm. and I only realized it a couple of days later what she was doing Justin I have to say I think delivers one of the most interesting and unusual comic performances <laughs> yeah. I have ever seen in my life in this show I want to take just a special second just to note how hard it is to be that fucking ridiculous <laughs> and still have a true emotional life inside of there somewhere is it's almost impossible and and every scene I, it makes me laugh I, I cannot look at the dailies the other thing I sh- should say too about his performance not to go on and on there is a cut of maniac that is 10 times broader than the cut that's on mm-hmm. on on Netflix right now because he and I I think have a similar sensibility in that there is no too big yeah it gets naked gun kind of yeah right and and he i I would always be like more more scream louder and carrie would be like can we 
like maybe pull it back a little bit <laughs> to to Carrie's credit because he needed that restraint too. But that you know, there he there, every single scene that we shot, he he screamed one take somewhere or he lost it in the Is there a version of Maniac that's entirely the instructional video that was shown (laughs) in the beginning? (laughs) There is a longer version. Yeah, I bet. There was a fight, too, to to get that made to— to make it as long as we made it, but it's it's cool. Yeah, his his the tonal shifts that happen in his performance are, I think, symbolic of the entire show, and it must have been very difficult to sort of manage different things. You've got so many different elements from like I even something like the accent Jonah does in the UN episode and the spy episode is such a choice that it's going to impact, like, it's going to have a ripple effect throughout that entire episode in terms of how seriously you take the hallway shootout. You know what I mean? It's so interesting to think of the jigsaw puzzle of of what these little choices that all these very strong performers are making. Particularly when you are not, as you just alluded to, you're not shooting it um, uh, in cumulatively order. in yeah. order. So it's not like you can say, well, be- we've earned this here in eight because we know exactly where we've been along the road. No, we shot the show entirely out of order. Yeah. We shot scenes from 10 on the first day of production. The, the, ad, the ad buddy scenes um, in 1 and 10 with, uh, with Ariel in, in Cup and Saucer, is that place Cup called? Cup and Saucer, yeah. which just closed. Uh, those were day one of production. So, yes, then an added layer of difficulty because of that as well, tone-wise. But I, I have a lot of trust that if you treat your central characters as though their emotions are important you can get away with almost anything mm-hmm. on on the ridiculous side of the spectrum i mean it needs modulation but i i think that it's it's just when you stop taking seriously the emotional experiences of, of those two characters that i think the the wheels would come off entirely i want to ambush you with a question here please um, i know you were concerned about being ambushed by chris but the danger was staring you in the face <laughs> all along. Um, you, I think we, I knew that, too. We've, we've mentioned um, your involvement in seasons two and three of The Leftovers. Coincidentally or not, the seasons where I truly loved the show. So thank you for that. Um, but you worked on that with Damon, and you worked um, prior to that on another favorite show of mine, The Bridge, with— um, The Weird Bridge was your favorite the show. The Weird Bridge right? was my favorite yep. show that ran kind of just below yep. The Bridge. With uh, the showrunner Elwood Reed, who's been nice enough to be on this podcast before. Um, very special to say both Damon and Elwood listen to this podcast, so you're doubly on the clock for the uh, answer here. I was just curious if you could talk about what you learned from working with those two guys. Um, very different shows. Oh, yeah. I'm sure very different working methods and styles, but you work closely with both um, before you had the opportunity to run your own show with Maniac. So much. I mean, I, when I started on the bridge, I had I hadn't no experience whatsoever. And I had never been on a set and had never been in a writer's room. And Elwood, Elwood has a very good get-to-the-point-ness of him and, and, and sort of an ability to see through pretty fluffy bullshit that is the, when you are feeling insecure and inexperienced in a writer's room, you go to to try to kind of like make yourself feel relevant in some way, shape, or form. And there's, there's this attraction to just sort of trying to fake, I don't know, discuss instead of pitch. Mm-hmm. And and pitching is its own skill and really, really difficult. And I think he kind of saw, saw through that. And he's he's a, he's a tough love kind of guy, too. And so he was hard on me when I would make mistakes. And it, it helped me sort of just learn how to, how to do TV generally. And just letting us on the set as staff writers is very unusual to go produce our episodes. I, you know, that's I ra- crazy. I, I raved about that episode you did first, right? <laughs> Famously. Andy trashed my first episode did of The Did you really? Bridge. Yeah. Apparently. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. It, yeah. I know how to pick them, it was, you know? You use the word breathless. And when I was reading it, I remember kind of being like, that's a positive word, isn't it? And then I was like, nah, that's not. And then the, the next part of the sentence was like, the, breath, the breathless Seventh episode of season one. Not that it stuck with you or comma, anything. No, he didn't pay attention. The shittiest comma. episode of the season by far. <laughs> I would never say shittiest. I, I would have said I used a much classier way to say it was a terrible episode, I'm sure. I think you said the worst written episode of the season. By Patrick Summerfield. <laughs> who I will in no way rely on to get my child into preschool. Just a, a scant 18 months from now. That was that was also good for me. Thank you. Oh, you know, I learned a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. See, Chris. See it. <laughs> Don't ever Chris. say that about me. <laughs> 
I have some notes on the episodes you did without me last month, and uh, I'll be sharing them. After What's going to happen? What is going to happen when Andy's show comes out? I'm just going to do it with an Andy hologram. Are you, like, are we going to talk about Andy's show? Fuck yeah. Can I come and he, he be yeah. gone? Yeah. And, we'll, and you we'll want to just, just review Andy's stuff? Yeah. If yeah. I'm lucky enough to make more episodes of this show, I think it would only be fair if you and Damon and Elwood and <laughs> Sam Esmail just took turns <laughs> just roasting week to week using my own language. I think that would be fair. Let me also finish answering your question about Damon, too, because he is is in the room, has this kind of, scary ability to pitch entire scenes kind of in real time. We, we, we did it different in The Leftovers. We broke the whole scene in that writer's room, like pretty much down to the line, and there was a little bit of room left, but, but the arc of whatever conversations were going to happen in a scene happened in the room. He's going to say this, she's going to say that. They're going to be like, okay, we have to go do this. Yeah, yeah. And, not, and not even the general gist of what they're going to say, how they say it, okay. too. And so we would do, we would take a whole day to do a scene together as a group. But once in a while, Damon would just sort of, it would all be there at once. He would just kind of monologue a whole scene. And I had never seen anyone in, in the TV industry perform the pitch like that. He, he has this, this extra gear that, that is shocking, but I learned a lot about how valuable pitches themselves are, not just in writer's rooms, but in all the meetings and the, the way that, that Hollywood operates. So, to be able to go into a meeting and, and summon the feeling of, of a scene or an idea right there mm-hmm. is very powerful. And, and I think I can't do it like he can do it, but I, I learned a lot watching him. Have you ever seen that... Um it's on YouTube. It's a video of David Milch on the set of John from Cincinnati explaining a long monologue that mm. the the alien guy is supposed. He's not an alien, but the, you know, like the guy is supposed to give in this motel parking lot. And he's standing there. He's got like a black T-shirt and black pants on, and he's got his like you know lens lenses on. He's just like, and this fucking guy is gonna go over here, and he's talking about Plato, and it's the the flames on the walls. Which of course means heroin, which of course is, relates back to horse riding, oh, no. which of course is surfing, and like he's just like and these actors are all standing like what the fuck is this guy? And he does this whole eleven minute monologue explaining the monologue, and he's walking, he's just like gesticulating. It's amazing. What's been incredible for me over the last year is realizing that there is until you are at the point where you are now, Patrick, where there's like the ten episodes are on Netflix and everyone watches them, and that's the final product. You show your work. No one knows what anyone else is talking about up until that point. It's all speculative. Hmm. It's all changeable. The version of Briar Patch that I explained to the people at USA is different than the version of Briar Patch that Lily is working on right now in the editing room, you know, that I'm going to get to see next week or that the production design that the actors thought they were doing or wanted to be doing. It's all fungible and filtered through other people's minds and perspectives until you have the final thing. And that's both incredibly exciting, but it's also kind of totally terrifying, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You have to let go. And yeah. that's very hard as as a novelist, which is, I guess, the, truly the auteur medium in that it's just you. Maybe mm-hmm. some intervention from a good editor now and then. But I think spoken word performance, <laughs> like Chris and I used to do in East Village, is probably more pure. But yeah, go on. You have to let it go, and you have to be comfortable with the idea that someone else is maybe going to find ways to do the thing that you want to do. And maybe it's going to be better, too. Maybe you didn't actually hit the best version of it along the way. And the idea that there are different paths to an endpoint, and they are not necessarily superior than one another. They're, they're just fundamentally different. Um, that's difficult to accept and, and something that I'm always working on. But I think you have to. It's collabor- All TV is a collaboration. It is. You're coming off of Leftovers, and one of the things that's so interesting, and I, I actually really loved this part of it for this specific show for Maniac. But Leftovers, and I think to its credit, demanded all this attention because people were wondering, where is it going? What is it going to try and say at the end? Where like I'm, I'm tense because I want Kevin to be happy or I want Nora to be happy. I want this to work out for people. There was a lot of week-to-week anticipation and anxiety around that. And my viewing experience with Maniac, without even knowing you were or weren't coming in, was much more like... I think almost pr- appropriate for the show where it was just kind of like washing over me and I'd watch two and then I wouldn't watch it for a week and then I'd watch one and then we'd watch, we watched all the, the Middle Earth ones kind of together. And I, I, I found myself, it changed how I was 
relating to the story in terms of the way we usually do for week-to-week TV where we're like, where is it going? What's Saul going to do this week to get it closer to the finish line? It was a different writing something that you knew would be ingested in totally different ways by tons of different people rather than, hey, it's season three. It's a week-to-week thing. We have to get these people to this place and tease them out over the course of this time period. A bit, but it's your question I think is also informed by the, a, a debate Carrie and I had throughout making the show, which was episodic storytelling versus um, long-form storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, Carrie is much more of of the, I'm making a very long movie here, Ilk, and I am much more of the, we're making 10 episodes of a show, and each of those episodes has a core emotional idea that's going to control how the story works. And I think in the end, when you watch the show, it ha- it's it's a to me it's a very interesting mixture of those where sometimes it's more episodic and sometimes it kind of doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there is no controlling emotional idea in some of those episodes. It depends which one you're talking about, really. And and so it changed along the way. Sure, I started it, and and the version of the show that that the writers' room kind of outputted before that step uh, was was very episodic and I think very much could have just aired on HBO or Netflix. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really built to be Netflix. And and I think now I really think people should just watch it all together. I, I think there's something about Maniac where the sum is greater than the parts and and it's it's built in a way just to sit down and and go through it. Um, but I think too the other thing I was thinking in the first part of your question is I'm a huge advocate of fun mm-hmm. in in television, and especially after, I think, you know, The Leftovers, I found to be very fun, but also heavy. it's heavy. And the first season in particular is, was icy and heavy. And sometimes it's hard. And There are a, no worn moon jerseys in The Leftovers. N- no, but there's a dude standing on a giant pillar. <laughs> true. And there's, you know, there's a giant inflatable Gary Busey. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but it's, there's, you know, many other shows that are very, very serious about what they're trying to do and what, what they're trying to talk about. I, I'm fine with shows like that. I can, I can go with it. But I also, I really do think that in the landscape of television right now, it should be entertaining. It should be really fun and not necessarily have that grimness to it mm-hmm. that I think maybe when you say like you could, you weren't, you weren't worried in the same way about, about how it was going to yeah. end up. There's something about TV now, when it, especially when it's on HBO or something like that, where you're you're going through a familiar emotional reaction no matter what the material is because you're kind of anticipating certain hallmarks of a season of television. You're anticipating that penultimate episode that's going to change everything. You're anticipating the finale that will also maybe set up the future or wrap everything up. And there there was something about Maniac where I was like, was never thinking about those kinds of things. I was never like, oh, here comes the second last episode. It's going to be sincere, like significant, even though it is. You know, I mean, I was almost breaking out of like watching habits. Yeah, I mean, I think that's because it doesn't quite have the same cadence and pacing of, of typical prestige yeah. television right now. And I think that's the combination of me and Carrie. That's a, the weird mix of our sensibilities. But also... I think the show is constantly gesturing toward a happy ending, too. I think it's telling you from the beginning like the, that, that these people are going to be okay, but it, it may not happen in the way that, that mm-hmm. Dr. Ray is saying it's going to happen. But I don't think the show is ever really saying, you know, be careful because the red wedding is right around the corner. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> right. it doesn't, it, it ne- maybe it would have been great to do that because I would have caught you off guard so much. But at the same time, it's just not, it's just not that kind of show, yeah. you know? Getting caught off guard is overrated. No, it's interesting. It's kind of has the, the, the cadence of a fable or like Alice in Wonderland in a way. You know, there's a sense that what's dangerous, actually dangerous for these people is in, you know, inside of them and how they deal with it. The world, though bizarre, isn't as threatening as what they can do to themselves. Yeah, in, in, a, yeah. in a way. And I think very early when when I knew it was Jonah and Emma, one of the first things I said when I had one of like eighty five meetings to actually get the job <laughs> was that I really thought there needs to be an antagonistic comic force in in the show. Mm-hmm. Which I, I, some of it has to do with if if Mantle Ray is the bad guy, it's it's sort of hard to get worried that he is actually going to harm people mm-hmm. because he's not out to harm people, right? If your bad guy is comic, then 
It isn't all that bad. He, and he's not that bad, yeah. That, I, I, there is a sense of safety to that. We live in a world where, well, I, I should say, so when you, when you fire up the maniac on the Netflix, yeah. it says a limited series event in big letters, but we do live in a world where there are bigger little lies. There's what seasons. are those bigger little lies? They gotta to be. be. I mean, the size. Trying to really figure out the size of them, considering they're both bigger but still small, is really going to be. It's the tough. cover. Is it the cover up? They have to do the cover up, right? Uh, you know, you're talking to the wrong, wrong podcast for that one. But. I feel like the goss is that Meryl is related to Skarsgård, right? Skarsgård's mom. Yeah. Wow. What a bloodline. So she's, coming, she's coming into town and she's going to figure out what happened yeah. to her boy. Big little blogs. You got to read those. I, I definitely <laughs> stay far away. <laughs> you know where the question is, though, is like, is there more story here in this world? Is it ever possible to align the heavens and get these actors' schedules clear or carry again? Is, the, is, there, a, is there a conversation going on where it would take a different form if Maniac were to continue? Or is everything on the table or nothing off the table? I, th- I think Annie and Owen's stories are done. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think that was that was what the what the the season was doing and and it was for them and it was about their their emotional arcs. I I don't know, you know, like Netflix is not bullshitting when they say we don't tell people about the numbers. Like they they don't. Mm-hmm. Um and they play their cards close to the vest. So I don't really know where they're at about it. I love the world that we made and and there's a lot of imagination that was that was poured into it and I think there's actually there's just m- much more potential there. And I think that Justin and Sonoya's performance in in the show made them very intriguing characters. Um so kind of just like sitting around thinking about it yeah, there's 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 more. There's, I think the, there's the big little book tour, man. The 47 <laughs> city Sally right. Field book tour is right I, there. I, I, I will yeah. buy a ticket for that. Um, but you never know. Like it, it's 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 business, but it's also about uh, people and who wants that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to be I don't want to be a guy who forces this thing out into the world and it's sad and everyone's like, just don't do it. Um, and that I think that just takes a little bit of time. I d- I do think the season and the show found a lot of people and made a lot of people happy in in their their viewing experience. And so I don't know. We'll see. It's it's just sitting up there on on a on on my Roku right now. It's strange to imagine that it just exists. It you exists know? right now. I could call it up on this computer right now. I know. Would you and, like me to? No, please don't. <laughs> uh, have you have you guys gotten much? I'm sure there are lots of Easter egg blog posts about Maniac, but did, has people have people brought up the big hug mug? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, that was uh, I saw Max putting that out there, and that was that was a little I think a little arrangement between he and Carrie. That was to, awesome to put it there in that scene. Yeah. Um, Billy Billy threw it and destroyed it. Too oh no! In that scene. Wait, that, was that from the True Detective set, or is there like I, I a don't big know. hug mug? Usually, Andy can speak to this. Usually, when you have a prop that's going to break, someone wheels a cart with eighteen of them <laughs> out into the room. On the day. Also, I did discover firsthand that. The beauty of a TV set is everyone takes their job extremely seriously, which is great. And everyone's passionate about their particular lane. Mm-hmm. And prop people will populate stuff with props. Like, they <laughs> will bring a lot of props. <laughs> and they will bring you a lot of options. And if you don't say anything, they will bring you, like, seven of those options. Yeah. And just put them all out. Finally, we're lucky to have you here, Patrick, because we're, we're fans. But also, we know that you have listened to this podcast once or twice. And because we have welcomed Sam Esmail on to serve as kind of an informal ombudsman at times and criticize us for things. I'd like to give you a chance on the microphone if there are issues you'd like to take with us. <laughs> oh, do you have or or just some notes, some direct you know direction you'd like us to pursue? <laughs> um, you know, Sam's note famously, just for context, was you guys should start watching TV shows again. Yes, yeah, which I thought was a stop little, talking about Star Wars gossip. A little aggressive. Yeah, but we've tried to adjust to his to his his desires. Uh, Is there a show we've missed? A show we've sold short? Is there something Chris was really oh, wrong about that you'd like to bring up again so we could talk about it? Oh, we could get into Leftover Season 3, the, fi- <laughs> the final thoughts on Leftover Season 3, if Chris wants to. Can Honestly, you, like— Can you quote it down to so comments? So much has happened since then <laughs> no, that I don't that even— didn't hurt. Yeah. So I can't even remember what, like, what no, was my take. No, actually, I know, what, I know what you were picking at back then, though, too. It's, it's sort of—the it, it, the show, kind of like Maniac, sort of asked— a lot in terms of letting go of realism. You were saying you were saying something a couple weeks ago that I responded to too, which is that it's hard it's hard for the emotional stakes to feel real when it is not realism. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think Jonah on the first day of prep when we were chatting, he was like, "Can't happen, won't watch it." I think he said that. 
like his his sort of aesthetic is just sort of like fantasy. No, sci-fi. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. I just want real things because I feel it. I just feel it. It's real when it's realism, and it's just we, not we like, real. sir. This is an Arby's drive-through. <laughs> 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 um, and I think there, you know, there is a kind of fatigue when you're entering into to sub realities mm-hmm. that accumulates, and and I think I think I that was maybe building up in uh, in season three of Leftovers for you, and it's just just is fair. I like real, I like gritty, grounded realism. Yeah, all the I mean, way I through. try to like have a. I think a lot of it is contextual. A lot of it is what else am I watching at the time, or what else mm-hmm. is on at the time. I think that's what we were also talking about with all the fantasy shows that were going to come on next year or in the next couple of years. It was just like kind of like getting ready for a lot of new. Elves. To, yeah, a lot of a lot of elves in our lives. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I think Chris, you should make fun of Andy much more, especially when he monologues. Oh, I like it. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I got a lot of stuff going on on my phone. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, he, we haven't done it today, but there are definitely moments when the eyes leave <laughs> this reality. I think it's more of a glassy into vacancy. A sub-reality. I like to think of it as like I'm staring at your forehead, but like I'm no, just, I see the light go out. Yeah, and that just makes me burn brighter. Honestly, <laughs> I'm like, I guess I just got to carry this whole thing myself again. Uh, no, man, you guys are great. I love, you, I love that you're out here talking about it, and I love it. I love it when you talk the business of TV. Because it is very, it is very frustrating to read criticism that feels like it's coming from a place that does not fundamentally understand how TV gets made. It's it's both kind of more painful in, but in the right way, in the way that you're learning as a writer, when it's coming from someone who who kind of can see through how a show got mm-hmm. made in the way that it got made, or what went maybe this went wrong at the production level. That's that stuff is fascinating to me, and you you miss it a lot when you read this or that think piece about TV. Would you like to take this moment now to name the members of the production who sabotaged your episode of The Bridge? <laughs> now that I know more about it, I can understand. Like, yeah. maybe it was the second AD. The truth who... is, the truth is, I sabotaged my episode oh. of The Bridge. It is. I didn't know anything. This, you know, is, the, I didn't this know. is the C-pill we just took before That's the right. voting. That's, That's clearly... Right. I didn't know, I didn't really know how to make TV. And yeah. I, I think I half knew how to do a lot of it, but I made all sorts of mistakes making that episode. And but I learned from them too. Could you give Andy's me a list of like those mistakes? Right <laughs> I don't yeah, think like, you're going to make them. We'll see. I don't think you're going to make them. But I, Meredith Steam, the third showrunner mm-hmm. I've I've worked for, who I learned a lot from, used to have this thing in in the writers' room where she would she would point at a scene and say. Basically, she would say, "Why is that scene? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like why?" Yeah, and. That it made that question made no sense to me when I, in the first season of the bridge I was like be, because it's cool because it's a, it's a cool conversation between two people and she was saying something I think much more relevant to television which is yeah. which is that they have to be doing work things have to be doing deep deeper work than what's on the surface yeah, you of can't it. afford the luxury of of vamping yeah. of showing like it's not about that at all um, it's about what's how do the scenes work together in, into a puzzle that give someone a, a feeling at the mm-hmm. end of the episode. I didn't get that at all. Hmm. Thanks, Meredith. <laughs> <laughs> well, Don't that do note, that. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming by, man. Yeah, Congratulations. Thank you. thank you. I'm glad you guys talked about the show. I'm glad you guys liked it. Thanks for being here. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection, featuring services like Doorman Service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids, or Turndown Service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat. It's all controlled by the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you.